Lord, we love you, and as we look in your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to hear and see the things you want for each one of us, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. You never know what a day will bring or a decision will bring. Mark didn't know, I think, two weeks ago or a week ago, you know, a day would come up and he'd be informed he's out of a job. You never know where things are going to go. In Genesis chapter 12, famous passage because in Genesis 12, God talks to a guy named Abram, Abe, and he calls Mr. Abe out of his old country, his old farmland, away from his dad's household and family, and he tells him to go to this land called Canaan, far away, that he's going to give him this land, and he's going to bless him. And when he blesses him, he's going to make his descendants a blessing to all the earth. And so Abraham, later called Abraham, goes to Canaan. He's in the place God has called him to, in the land of Canaan. And one of the first things that happens, having obeyed, gone to the place God tells him to go, one of the first things that happens is a famine. And in Genesis 12:10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land... So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. By the way, I'm editing this passage as I go. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman, his wife Sarah, Sarai, was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into his house. Therefore he, Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. As you guys probably know, the story is she's agreed to his conspiracy, don't tell anyone you're my wife. That's why Pharaoh thinks she's available, takes her into his own house. Finds out later, she's spoken for, this isn't okay. But the end of it was, there's a famine in the land. Abram goes down just for a temporary sojourn just to have enough food on the table for a short time and ends up coming back blessed and enriched and wealthier than when he went, all by God's doing. Famine brought movement and in the end it brought wealth. Kind of an interesting story. In Genesis 26, let me read you a short passage there about Abe's son, Isaac. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. When he's there, the Lord appeared to him and said, Don't go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I'll tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I'll be with you and bless you. My suspicion is Isaac was probably thinking about doing the same thing Dad did, go down to Egypt. God interrupts and says, Don't go that far. You've left central Canaan. He's on the coastal area where the Philistines are. God says, stay there, I'll bless you. So, Genesis 26, 6, so Isaac lived in Gerar. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to go richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possession of flocks and herds and a great household so that the Philistines envied him. Another story in which here's Isaac living in the land of Canaan where God's told him to live, and along comes a famine. And so he moves out of the place he would normally be living 
just to escape the famine. Again, this is just to take care of the short-term needs. And gosh, along the way, he ends up becoming wealthy as he's displaced temporarily by the famine. And his plan was just short-term needs, provide for short-term needs. And in the end, God makes him far wealthier than he was before. So both stories, they're where God calls them to be. A famine comes. They make a decision to leave temporarily. While they're temporarily out of the place God has told them to live, they become wealthy. In fact, in the second story, it's a man with his wife and his two sons displaced by famine who go to seek their short-term fortune elsewhere. I use these passages briefly as an introduction to the book that we'll actually be starting this morning. And it's another story starting in a similar way in which a man and his wife and his two sons are moved by famine out of the place God's called them to live to someplace else. And the book is the story of Ruth. Now, this is one of the best loved, especially of the Old Testament stories. And for several reasons, it's short. Short stories are always easy to take, right? It's short. Uh, literarily, it's a gem, and we'll, we'll see more of this as we work our way through it. But, you know, one of the interesting things, this has nothing to do with our story, but people don't know the Bible very well and talk about its problems or its inconsistencies or whatever. The truth is, when you study the Scripture, and especially in the last hundred years or so, again, this is a freebie. This has nothing to do with anything, but... 150 years ago in Europe, a higher criticism came in and said, man, we're looking at the scriptures and we don't believe this is really put together by God. We can figure out the literary pieces of the puzzle and who wrote it and when and who edited it, etc. And what they were trying to do was basically say the Bible was not inspired by God. Well, it's interesting that on the heels of literary or higher criticism, a literary criticism in a, maybe a softer way, you could say, looks at the scripture and finds these neat literary devices used throughout, things we didn't know about before, and things like chiasm become a big part of stories like Ruth. And you start digging a little deeper and see, not only is this God-breathed, but it has inherent structure, and the literary structure itself tells you what's important in a passage or a chapter or a book. And Ruth has this same thing. So besides being a short story, literarily it's a great piece of work, And then it's also, it's kind of interesting because it's got the human interest types of events in it. We've got hope and expectation, and we've got tragedy and loss, and we've got redemption, and in the end we've got God's providence overseeing and overriding all. It it ends on a happy note. It's a great story, and it's one that's, that's very loved in the Old Testament. So with Genesis as our introduction... Let's start at Ruth 1. We're only going to get through five verses this morning. Ruth 1, chapter 1. It came about in the days when the judges governed, or judged, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. Uh, The first thing just about where this story occurs in the days of the judges You know, if you want to read the gross stories in the Old Testament, you know where you go. You go to the book of Judges. It is the low point. It is the gutter, so to speak, of Israel's time in the land of Canaan. And remember, the period of the Judges is after Joshua and before the kings. 
And so this is after Moses leads them out of Egypt. Joshua takes them into the land, but there's no king yet. And so once they kind of settle down, things corrupt in short order. And so what you see is a cycle of spiritual decay, terrible decay, really lousy times, and then pain because God brings judgment through foreign oppressors coming in. Well, then in the pain, of course, Israel cries out. God brings a judge who delivers them from the oppressor and their spiritual renewal. And so you just get this cycle throughout. And throughout the book of Judges, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Excuse me. Yes, Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That was the problem, of course. Remember, God gave them the law at Sinai. He told them how to live. It was discarded before Moses came down from the mountain. So the Judges is really a tempestuous, up and down, back and forth, tough times to live in until the kings get there. And Ruth is going to lay the groundwork to tell us about one of those key kings indeed. So this is a bright spot in an otherwise really lousy period of Israel's history. Uh, And if you notice the phrase, this is the third time we've read this phrase this morning, there was a famine in the land. This is exactly the same phrase in Hebrew that's used in Genesis 12 and 26. Exactly the same phrase. So when the writer of Ruth wrote this down, he probably had something in mind. And when these Jewish boys and girls hear this story for the first time, when they hear this phrase, there was a famine in the land, they've heard it before. They've heard it in Genesis And my suspicion is that as soon as they hear the phrase, their thought is, oh, great. Here's another story where famine is going to push somebody out of the land God gives them, and they're going to come back bigger and better than they left, and it'll be great. That's probably what they're thinking. Probably what they're thinking. And in fact, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but think of Elimelech, Eli Melech, Elimelech. Here's a famine in the land. And he knows about famines in the past. And he knows that when God's men left the place God put them to sojourn, same phrase used in Genesis 26, to sojourn because of famine, God blessed them and brought them back with more than they had when they left. So I suspect the writer, the hearers, and maybe even one of our key figures early on here, Elimelech, are thinking of those stories in Genesis and that famines have happy endings. So there's probably some immediate expectation as soon as this little short story starts with these phrases, famine in the land, a certain man of Bethlehem went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. Uh, Let me say before I go any further that this sounds reasonable and it's probably meant to. It sounds reasonable. It's trading in on the themes of earlier stories in Genesis. So there's a reasonable appeal here early on. On the other side, though, this may not be meant to sound reasonable. In general, literarily, when you're in the Old Testament, if you see people moving towards Israel, that means blessing. And if you see them moving away or out, that means trouble or judgment. Trouble or judgment. So, for instance... When David's in trouble and chased by Saul, what does he have to do? He's got to leave. And he goes actually where Isaac was, to the area of Gerar, to the Philistine area. He has to leave the land. When the Assyrians capture the northern 
tribes, what do they do? They take them out of Israel. They're left out of Israel. When Nebuchadnezzar comes, when Babylon captures the southern tribes, what happens? They're deported out of Israel. In fact, in Deuteronomy, God says, if you obey, you're in the land, and I'll bless you, and you'll have everything in abundance, like Abraham and Isaac. But he says, if you break the law, if you disobey, if you do the things I'm telling you not to, he uses an interesting phrase. He says the land will vomit you out. That God's judgment would mean they would be dispossessed and they would be moved out of the promised land. Now remember, Israel is the promised land. It's not just the land God promised to Abraham and his descendants, but God says part of the condition of his blessing to Israel is they will be in that land. So when they're there in Israel, it represents the place of God's choosing and his blessing. So when we read in most Old Testament stories, if you see someone leaving Israel, you've got to ask yourself a question. Is this for the best? Is, or is this trouble and is this judgment? So for Elimelech, probably thinking about these Genesis stories and maybe thinking, if I leave the land, God will bless me like he did them. But on the other hand, maybe presuming or assuming on someone else's story and not what God had for him. And we'll speak a lot in generalities about this book because, frankly, the story does not praise and it does not condemn Elimelech, nor his sons. It just tells us what they did and what happened. So we've got to be careful if we're about our assessment on them or the situation in general. One of the things I ask myself, though, God is very prominent in this book. You read stories like Esther, God is not mentioned once. It's one of the reasons why Esther was a questionable addition to the Old Testament canon. God's not mentioned. His name's not there. That's not true of the book of Ruth, but God's not present in the first five introductory verses. He's not here. He's not mentioned. So I ask myself the question, I wonder if Elimelech presumed on the way God had led and blessed in the past and didn't pray. doesn't say. I'm just wondering. Did he pray and ask God's counsel? Did he talk to his neighbors about the wisdom of leaving Israel, even though there's a famine, and going across to Moab? We don't know. It doesn't say, but I wonder. Verse 2, the name of the man was, as you already know, Elimelech. This is two words, Eli, Melech, God and king. God is my king, my My God is king. Take it either way. Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant. Names are important in this book, just based on what they mean. Pleasant, delightful, lovely. This sounds pretty good so far. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. And by the way, we're not entirely sure what these names mean, so I'm not even going to get into the options. We know they were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Ephrath is the old name for the city of Bethlehem. And perhaps by using the term Ephrathites, it may be telling us that Elimelech's family had been here a long time. Remember, Israel's in the land now, maybe up to 400 years or so. They've been here a long time. And by using the older name for Bethlehem, it's probably an inference that their family had been there a long time so that when Elimelech leaves, he's leaving 
gosh, his hometown, the, the place of his ancestors, as well as the nation, the national area God promised to bless them in. So they leave Bethlehem, which, by the way, means the house of food or bread or plenty. The famine is so severe that a place normally known for its rich provisions is itself depleted. They entered the land of Moab and remained there. Now, Bethlehem's down kind of in the southern portion of Israel, so they would have crossed the Jordan River and then gone a little south because Moab's across the southern Jordan River and basically across from the Dead Sea area. That's Moab. So they've gone to Moab and they've remained there. So, so far, so good. Sounds okay. Sounds kind of like Genesis. Two accounts in Genesis. Verse 3, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. One of our family's favorite movies is The Princess Bride. And in The Princess Bride, grandfather is reading sick grandson a story. And so while the movie starts in the bedroom and grandpa's reading the story, of course the movie then switches to the story itself. And so you see the story. And every once in a while... Something happens in the story that the unseen grandson now doesn't like. And so he says, hold it. Stop. That's not what's supposed to happen. And I'm reading this story and I'm saying, hold on. What happened? Elimelech, this sounds just like Genesis 12 and 26 and the story's going just fine. And verse 3, he dies. This isn't, this isn't right. This isn't the way this is supposed to work. He's going to leave for a little while like Abraham and Isaac and God's going to make him wealthy and then he's going to come home. What happened to my story? My happy story's faded. But, okay, Elimelech's out of the picture and maybe he wasn't such a good guy anyway. And Naomi's left and she's still got her two sons. So we can make this work. Life goes on, right? Verse 4. And they, Naomi's sons, Malon and Chilion, took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Now, frankly, I'm saying, whoa, again. What do you mean they took Moabite wives? Does this strike you? Let's think back to where we're at. Numbers 25. What happens to Israel as they're coming up out of the wilderness? On the east side of the Dead Sea, King Balaam of Moab asks his buddy, the prophet Balak, to curse them, remember? And Balak can't, but he tells them, I can't get them for you, but you can get them. What do you do? You just have your Moabite girls invite those nice young Jewish boys to the temple service in your land and... Win them over to your side, your God, your ways. Then they won't be a threat. We talked about this when we read through Revelation, right? The teaching of Balaam. It was Nicolaitanism. It was you can mix idolatry with the worship of the true God. In fact, listen to the passage out of Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to possess it, He's going to clear away the nations before you. You're going to defeat them. You're going to destroy them. Make no covenant with them. Show them no favor. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. 
for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he'll quickly destroy you. Now, technically, Moab is probably not included in the promised land. Generally, the promised land includes the Jordan and the Dead Sea and west. So we might say, hey, technically, the Moabites, they're not in the land, so you don't have to get rid of them. But the thought, the reason to not intermarry with the people of the land was they're idolaters and they'll turn you away from me. That's the issue. In Deuteronomy 23, 3, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. What are these guys thinking? What's the deal? I've got a few options. One, maybe they had no intentions of returning to Israel. So maybe the prohibition about Moabites can't enter the assembly of the Lord, that would at least mean they can't be a part of the temple or the tabernacle worship. Maybe these guys are thinking, we're not going home. doesn't matter. For that is an option, if you noticed in verse 1, it says they went to Moab to sojourn. That means they're going to walk around for a while, like Abraham and Isaac did, sojourn, walk around, come back. Verse 2 says they remained there. Verse 3 says they married and stayed there. 10 years. Their plans changed, didn't it? Uh, The sojourn ended up to be at least a 10-year bus stop. Maybe they said, we're never going home. We like it here. We're fine here. We're not going home, so it doesn't matter if we marry Moabite women. Option two is, maybe they thought, we'll convert our wives. This was missionary marriage. We're going to marry these nice Moabite women. We're going to convert them to the worship of Yahweh. Maybe that's what they thought. Who knows? Option three, maybe they don't know or care about God's restrictions. Remember during the period of the judges, that phrase, everyone just does what they see fit. That's what they do. Maybe they didn't care. These are nice gals. We happen to be here. Hey, we'll get married. It looks good. It's right in our eyes. This will work. We don't know, but this is an oddity, so that when we're reading this story, or if you're a nice young Jewish boy or girl hearing this story, when it says they married those Moabites, we're saying, hold it. How did that happen? That shouldn't be part of the story. But okay, I think uh, we lost our dad, okay, but we picked up a couple wives, and even though they're not from the right side of the tracks, if I'm Naomi, I'm thinking, okay, well, it's it's not what I wanted. They're not the nice Jewish girls I'd always hoped for, but... Hey, anyway, we'll get some grandkids out of it, and we've got our needs met, and it'll still be okay. It, life will go on. It'll be good again. And Then we get to verse 5, and, and then both Malon and Chilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. And I'm with Junior listening to Grandpa's story again, and I'm saying, hold on for the third time. What do you mean they died? I think, man, this story starts out great. Famine, no problem. Just like Abe, just like Isaac, we're going on, we're moving out, we're going to come back wealthy. And I've got three red lights in a row. And my storyline is devolving quickly. It's falling apart. So I start out with hope with a man, his wife, and two sons. And now I'm left with a wife, widowed, and two widowed 
daughters-in-law. Now remember, I mean, that would be tough enough in our culture, but this was impossible in their culture. Three unmarried women had no protection, no means of supply. They were in desperate straits. They've, lost, they've all three lost their husbands. They've lost all their provision and all their protection also. So what started out as this story of hope has quickly devolved to hopelessness and despair. Three women without hope. What are they going to do? What's going to happen? How will they, their needs be met? Who will protect them? And Gail, that's the rest of the story. And you've got to come back next week and next month to hear the rest. Because that's as far as we're going today. Sorry. It's a great story, so you've got to come back and hear the rest of the story. You could cheat and read ahead if you want. That is as far as we're going this morning. Anyway, you know, as I've read this, uh, some things prominently come to my mind. And one is, the key thought is that you and I don't know, as we're faced with dilemmas and choices in life, we don't know how a matter is going to turn out. We don't know what a day or a decision will bring. We don't know what a day or a decision will bring. Let me, let me share three thoughts about this. And again, speaking very generally, because again, this story doesn't tell us they did wrong specifically. It just tells us what they did and what happened so far. Generally, though, some thoughts or some lessons that come to mind for me. The first is generally... We're called to remain where God puts us. Generally, we're called to remain where God puts us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes to these Corinthian Christians, primarily women, who thought it would be more spiritual to get rid of those deadbeat husbands so they could be really spiritual women of God. Paul says you don't get it. God calls you to be faithful right where you're at. He says if you're married... Stay married. If you're single, great. If you're a slave, don't worry about it. If you're free, great. But he says you serve God in the state and in the place where he called you. That's the norm. That's the norm. For Jews in the Old Testament, this was especially the norm to stay in the land. The land was blessing. To be in the land was to be blessed. To be in the land was to be in the place of blessing. Listen to Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord. And by the way, this psalm is written to people who were looking around them and seeing evil people prosper. And they're wondering, gosh, what's going on? There's a famine in my own life, and these wicked guys, my neighbors across the way in Moab, they're doing great. What gives? And Psalm 37 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell, live, stay in the land, and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in, in Him, and He will do it. We tend to have a temptation that when our world gets shaken up a little bit, our first response is often we're going to get out of the situation we're in. The famine comes, fine, we'll leave. Things get a little tougher, a little difficult, fine, we'll move on. That's not the biblical norm. Generally, God calls us to stay where we're at and be faithful. Now, I say generally because obviously. If you're called as a missionary, 
You're called to go someplace else and start something new. Sometimes careers people are in are going to move them, and it's part of God's will for them that they're going to move from one place to another. Francis Schaeffer said something 30 years ago that, about ministry that I think is applicable here too, though. He was talking about people in full-time ministry in the church, and he said the temptation was to try to choose or move to a bigger and better ministry. Something higher scale pays better, better benefits, whatever. That that was the temptation. And trading on the themes of the gospel stories where Jesus says, choose the low spot and let the host at the feast move you up. Choose the low spot. He said that was his lesson for those in ministry. And it was choose the low spot and then serve right there faithfully so that if God wants to move you on, you let God compel that moving. He used the term extrude, which is used of metal, which is kind of a funny term to think of related to us. But the thought was, you allow God to exert pressure or influence on your life in such a way that it's him moving you to another place. It's not you of your volition and of your will moving yourself. Let God press you into that next place he wants you. But you do like Psalm 37 says, You dwell in the land, stay in the place God's got you, and be faithful right there. That's a general principle in Scripture, both Testaments, old and new. The second principle, when you're making decisions, don't count God out. Now again, it doesn't tell us Elimelech prayed. It doesn't tell us he didn't pray. But again, when you're facing something in your life and you're going to need to make a decision, pray about it. Don't count God out. Not only pray about it, search the scriptures personally. What does scripture say about your situation? What advice or counsel does the Bible already have for you related to the decision you need to make? Don't count God out. Ask him for direction. If any man lacks wisdom, James says, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously. You lack wisdom? Ask him. Look in his word for what he's already said about your situation. Sometimes there's absolutely black and white things that say do this or don't do that in the situations we find ourselves in. And then third, in that same category, ask other Christians that you know and that know you to pray for you and ask for their advice. That's found throughout Proverbs as well as the New Testament. Ask the counsel of others before you make those decisions. It's why. Seek God's counsel. Ask him for it, look for it in the scriptures, and look for it or ask for it in the counsel of other Christians. Don't count God out of your decision making. Don't assume that someone else's story is your story. Don't presume on God, but ask for his counsel. And then third, the truth is, all of us will find times in our lives where we pray, We ask for his counsel. We ask others to pray for us. We make our best decision, assuming it's God's will. Then you know what we have to do? Then we trust in God to bring about his will in our life. We trust his sovereignty and his providence to move after we make those decisions. You know, the truth is, even when you're making godly, appropriate, right decisions, the decisions God wants you to make, you're going to suffer for it sometimes. And making the right decision doesn't always mean greener pasture. Sometimes it means trouble.
and hardship. In fact, remember, Paul says, any Christian who wants to live in a way that's godly will suffer persecution. You cannot live in a world opposed to Christ and follow him and do so without any pain or any cost. It cannot happen. And sometimes just the blows of life. Even if we assume in this story these things were going to happen whether Elimelech and his sons were in Israel or Moab, even if we assume that, sometimes life just happens. And it's not because God isn't loving. It's not because he's evil. It's because we live in a planet and in a place in which death happens. Bad things happen because that's the kind of place this is. And until Jesus returns and changes it, that's what we work with. Christians get cancer. Christians lose jobs. People God loves go through terrible hardships. And that's life. And that doesn't mean they've made a bad choice. Sometimes we do make bad choices. And then sometimes the hardships in our life are the fruit of bad decisions. And when we receive those hardships, we need to say, Lord, are you telling me something? Do I need to be hearing something, learning a lesson because I made a bad choice, an unwise choice, an ungodly choice, whatever? Do I need to be learning something? Always appropriate to ask the Lord that. Lord, what are you wanting me to understand through these difficult circumstances? But back to that third principle, if you've sought God, if you've got biblical counsel, if the decision you're making is right in God's eyes as far as you know it, then you know what you do? You trust him. And you say, Lord, I trust you for all the things that follow. And even if it looks like hardships or pain or disappointment short term, Lord, as far as I know, my conscience is clear before you. As far as I know, I'm where you want me to be. As far as I know, I'm doing what you want me to do. And so, Lord, I trust you for whatever else happens. I trust you for the disappointment. Or, Lord, I thank you for the fullness or the provision. But I trust your providence. I trust your sovereignty to work these things out. I want to close with a poem by one of my favorite authors. It's a great poem. I would encourage you to memorize it, as a matter of fact. It's short. It's by Robert Frost. And most of you have probably heard it. It's called The Road Not Taken. And this certainly describes your life and mine at spots along the way. Life is a road and we're walking along and Frost describes for us what happens. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though, as for that, the passings there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted that I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The truth is we're all faced with Dilemmas and choices, roads, partings of the way where we make decisions. And we don't know where a thing is going to lead. 
And at these junctures, when we're on that path in the wood and it forks, and we're not sure which way to go, we pray, we ask God's counsel, we ask the counsel of others. We commit our ways to God. We ask Him to make it plain, and then we trust, and we move on. Let's pray. Lord, I love this poem because it's so applicable to life. It's a picture we can see, and it so well describes what we each face, if not daily, routinely in our life. Lord, this this idea about choices, faced with choices, and what do we do, and where do we go, and who do we go with, and Big things, Lord, and the effects long term. We don't know how a thing will turn out or how a decision or a day will end. Lord, it makes us feel small and it makes us realize we are not in control of our lives. I think of Jeremiah 10 that it's not in man who walks to direct his steps. Or Lord, I think of uh, Psalm, what is it, 34. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He delights in his way so that even if he falls on the path he chooses, the Lord will uphold him. And Lord, I guess this morning I just want to say again, we want to entrust our ways, our decisions, the paths and roads we take. We want to entrust them to you. Lord, we don't want to assume that someone else's story is ours. We don't want to make decisions presuming on your goodness. We want to lay our decisions at your feet. We want to gain your wisdom, Lord, your counsel. We want to share our decision-making with other Christians who can give us godly advice. And Lord, in the end, whatever happens in our life, we want to trust your sovereignty and your providence as this book is all about Lord, we thank you that someone else has already gone on the trail ahead of us, your son, the Lord Jesus himself, the author, the finisher of our faith. Lord, we entrust ourselves into his care and into your care in his name. In the name of the Lord Jesus himself, Lord, amen.